You're listening to the Inglewood College Podcast. Inglewood College is a ministry of Inglewood Baptist Church in Jackson, Tennessee. We believe that just because this season is temporary doesn't mean it can't be deeply transformative. Love God. Love people. Serve the world. Tonight, it'll be week two of a, a series that we had started at the beginning of the semester on feelings. And uh, semester or this uh, series is called All the Feels, and it's, it's talking about like the things that we feel, and we're trying to say, we're trying to take like the things that we feel and line them up next to truth, so that we're not just always being swayed by our feelings or being dictated by our feelings. Our life doesn't go up and down with the circumstances and the feelings that follow, but rather when we feel things, we line those things up against the truth from God's word and a more objective and greater reality than the things that we're experiencing and the things that we're feeling in order to know what we do, you know, when we feel these things. Okay, so last time we were together, we talked a lot about um, kind of like, honestly, like a sense of sadness, like, or, or, uh, or like downcast or grieving. And if you missed that one, uh, you can go back and check that out. We do have a, an Inglewood College podcast where we, where we put everything, uh, all our Wednesday night messages up there so you can keep up. But tonight we're going to be talking about um, jealousy and contentment. And really when I came into this one, I was wanting to call it jealousy and joy because I felt like that, that went well together, right? So like jealousy and joy would be a cool thing to talk about. But then I'm like, well, you can't just take a topic and then just go find the scripture that fits the topic. You know what I'm saying? I feel like there, that happens sometimes. I've done it before uh, and regret it, right? So you're just saying, I want to talk about this, so let me just go find a bunch of passages that I feel like support what I want to say. Instead, I think the better approach is to take uh, something from the Word and say, I'm going to let this dictate where it goes. So yeah, I knew we were going to talk about jealousy. I was hoping jealousy and joy would make sense. And so I went and looked around at some passages, and then I settled on one that I thought this was the Lord's leading. This is where we're going to be tonight. And uh, it's maybe not as much about jealousy straightforward as it is about desire. And like desires that we feel, like a desire for something. And in the context of where we're going to be tonight, we are going to talk about jealousy. Jealousy is part of it, but jealousy is kind of a byproduct of our desires and the way that we are tempted to idolize what we want or what we think is going to satisfy us or set us up for success or make us feel better about ourselves um, and how we, how we kind of follow those desires. And in, in keeping what we, with what we started last time, the passage we're going to be in tonight is in the Old Testament. So I didn't mean to do this. It probably won't be like this, the whole series in Old Testament passages, but we did an Old Testament passage last time. We're doing an Old Testament passage tonight. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 8 and 1 Samuel chapter 12, kind of hitting the same story at two different points. So 1 Samuel 8, you can go ahead and start turning there. And I think what we're going to see in this is a desire for something legitimate, but desired for the wrong reasons and pursued in the wrong way. And it ended up just being one in a series of instances where Israel rejected God in favor of something else. And this is the thing that they're essentially going to idolize and desire for themselves. It's not going to satisfy them. We're going to see that in the text tonight. So as you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8, go ahead and stand up when you find it. We're going to read all 22 verses. Okay, so we're going to stand up in honor of God's word and read through 1 Samuel chapter 8. It's also going to be on the screen if you don't have a Bible in front of you or a Bible app you want to open up to. And I'm going to read this, just going to read it in its entirety and talk about what's going on. Okay, so let's read this, 1 Samuel, all of chapter 8. 
when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male, male servants and female servants to the best of your young men and your donkeys and you put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and, and you shall be his slaves. And in the day that you cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourself, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. All right, you guys can have a seat. If you're not super familiar with Old Testament history, I'm going to give you a rundown of where we're at. Even if you are kind of familiar, still it'd probably be good for a little, a little uh, you know, brush up here. So obviously we know Moses led the people out of Israel, or out of, out of Egypt, led the people of Israel out of, out of Egypt, and he was headed toward the promised land, right? He got them just outside the promised land. And God gave the people a law through Moses and established a covenant with them there, where if they would follow all the law and obey the Lord and walk with him in his ways, then they would be blessed among all the nations. And they would be set apart to be his people. And God would go before them and he would lead them and he would go out in battle for them, ahead of them, and, and ensure victory for them. And he would set them apart amongst the nations for the sake of his name. And like I said, if they, if they would believe the Lord and follow him and walk in his ways, then, then he would bless them. But if they rebelled against the Lord and did not follow in his ways, then the Lord would work against them. So he gives them this law uh, and, uh, and warns them about these things. He says, hey, walk with the Lord and turns things over to Joshua. Joshua leads them into the promised land. The Lord does go out before them and he delivers their enemies into their hands and does things in miraculous ways. So the Lord sets them up in the, in the promised land and gave them victory over all their enemies to inhabit the land. And then a period of judges follows that. The book of Judges chronicles these things for us. And the judges presided over parts of God's people, but not the whole. So when you read about a judge, they're usually a judge over a tribe or a group of tribes for a time. And the way this would work would be like enemies rise up against God's people, you know, because they rebel against him. So they, would, they forget the law of the Lord. They forget God. They sort of turn their own way and do their own thing. And then enemies will rise up and uh, threaten to overcome them. They call out to the Lord. They return to him. The Lord sends a judge to deliver them. 
but it's a never-ending cycle. It just keeps happening. As soon as the judge is gone and out of the picture, the people turn away from the Lord again. And, and this is just sort of the cycle of things that would happen and over and over again. And then you end up at, a, at 1 Samuel. And Samuel is the last of the judges, the type of judges. He's not even really called a judge, but he is a judge-type figure. And he is sort of the, the end of the judge period before there are kings in Israel. And what we read, just read was the, sort of the turning point, all these things. And so here in chapter 8, Samuel, the last judge-type figure, is old. And he had tried to set up sons after him, some of his sons, to lead in the way that he had led, but they weren't leading well. And it would seem like when we read chapter 8, Samuel is frustrated, looks like God is upset with the people, and you could conclude that this whole idea of a king after the, after the judges and after everything else that God has done is a bad idea. Like their request for a king itself is sinful. And so it'd be, it'd be easy for us to go, look, okay, I see their fault. They asked for a king. They shouldn't have asked for a king, okay? Uh, you know, I'm not going to, um, or, or I guess we could look at this passage and say, like, also, they asked for a king. They're saying they want to be like the nations. I can see how this connects to jealousy. It'd be an easy sort of plug and play to say, okay, they looked at the nations. They got jealous of what the nations had. They wanted what the nations had. They shouldn't have asked for a king, all that stuff. And it, it could have been easy like that, right? And it'd be easier for us to do that. And then we could assume that the moral of the story is to not get caught up wanting what the world around you has, but rather let God be king over your life. And that would be awesome. Great sermon. We're done. We can get out of here. But that really is, is saying a little bit too little about what's really going on here. It wouldn't necessarily be a wrong application of the text. It's true that we shouldn't get caught up looking at the world, what the world has around us and rather be content with the Lord being king over us and king over our lives and living for him, right? But there's actually more going on than just that. More than just that cut and dry and simple. We need to be aware, actually, that they weren't wrong to be looking for or desiring a king. It wasn't a totally off-base thing. Early on in the biblical storyline, there is a king expectation set up as as early as Genesis 3.15. The idea of a king to come, and then if uh, even at the latest, the latest you could go in biblical history where it was obvious that the Lord is setting up a king expectation is where Jacob is blessing his sons, and he says that the scepter is going to be in Judah's hand. So there's a sense of like kingship that is part of the Old Testament storyline of God's people, and then you get to actually what Moses is laying out for the people right before they go into the promised land. He's trying to explain to them again the law and give them all this stuff. He gives them a section in Deuteronomy chapter 17. We're not going to read it. But Deuteronomy 17, 14 through, t- through 20, he lays out what it would look like for the people once they got into the land to request a king. So it's not like it's out of, out, of the, out of the blue that they're asking for a king or that it's so wrong for them to, to ask like a king. And, and they even use some of the language from Deuteronomy 17 when they request a king. They say, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. In Deuteronomy 17, it talks about asking for a king like all the nations. So they use this language, and it feels like, hey, they're not so far off base. So what is wrong with their desire for a king? If it's not bad to want this, then what is wrong with what they did? I think it was more about their why for a king and their, how they were going to go about getting that king and then the kind of king that they were looking for. That was the problem. You know, we're going to talk about those things more as we go, but God did have a king in mind for his people. 
He had a king in mind for his people, David. David would come after Saul. We see that God anoints David before Saul is even done being king. God had in mind a king for them. It was David, and in his timing, he was going to bring about that king. But the people didn't want to wait on God's timing. You know, in the meantime, God gave them not so much the king that they needed, but the king that they deserved for forsaking him as their king. And if they wanted a king like the nations, then that's what they were going to get. You know, he would take more than he would give. You know, as we read right there in in 10 through 18, it's this explanation, this warning of of what this king is going to be like. He's going to take. He's going to take, 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 take. He's going to take more than he would give, and eventually they'd want out from under this king because it wouldn't make them quite as happy as they thought it would. And yet, after Samuel warns them, they double down. They say, no, we want a king like the nations who will judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And so we're going to go on and read, actually, from chapter 12 and see what has happened on the backside of some things. This chapter 12, we're going to see Samuel's passing off of the baton as the leader type speech. But what happens between chapter 8 and chapter 12 is we meet Saul. If you don't know anything about Saul, he wasn't great. The only thing he had going for him was that he was tall. He was a big dude, and they thought, hey, this guy's going to lead us. He's going to lead us in victory. Other nations are going to look at this and going to see this, this huge king that we've got, and they're going to, you know, fear us and all that stuff. But we meet Saul, and Saul can't find his father's donkeys. That's the first thing you see about him. And he seems clueless about what's going on. He, he seems clueless about this, like God anointing him as king. And then after he's, he's told that God is going to set him up as king over the people, they do this cast lots thing before all the nations. They bring people in, and they're like, we're going to cast lots, and we're going to reveal who God's man is. And so... Samuel already knew it was going to be Saul. Saul already knew it was going to be him. But what does he do? He hides. He hides in the baggage because he doesn't want to come out. And so he's, he's not the king that they're going to be looking for. He's hiding when the lot falls on him. An enemy ends up threatening God's people in chapter 11. And Saul threatens the people himself after that and saying, like, hey, if you don't go out to battle with me, I'm going to cut you up like I cut up this oxen. Okay? He's threatening the people and all these things. And they probably, uh, you know, he did get a lot of people to come out and fight, and they, they defeat their enemy in chapter 11. And the people are probably feeling good after Saul delivers this victory for them. They, they're probably feeling like, okay, we picked the right guy. This is it. We have a king. He's defeated our enemy. But Saul, all along, you can see, if you read the story yourself, he does not have it together. And Samuel, when he gets to chapter 12, even though the people might have been feeling good about where things were, he, was, he is going to have some harsh words for what's going on. Okay, or what they're about to be looking at. So we're going to pick up uh, part of the way through Samuel's address in chapter 12. Before the verses that we're going to read, we're going to start in verse 12 of chapter 12. Before that, he's sort of recounted a little bit of Israel's history, reminding them of some of the things that God has done for them. And then he's going to get to verse 12. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, that's the enemy from chapter 11 that Saul ended up defeating. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold the king whom you've chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you'll fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it'll be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still 
and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve him with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. As notice that Samuel's address doesn't sound real positive. The people probably feeling a little bit positive coming into this, and, and this is a wake-up call a little bit to remind them that this was not the right thing for you to do, to ask for a king in this way. And Samuel's mind hasn't changed a bit from the warnings he gave in chapter 8. He's pretty clear that what they've done in requesting a king is sinful. And yet he's trying to give them hope. He's trying to give them hope that if you and your king will just follow the Lord, And be his covenant people, if you'll surrender to his lordship and not just rely on this king, then you will be fine. You will do well. But if you turn away from the Lord, he's going to sweep the king and you right out of here. And he's not really being all that optimistic, but he's still giving them an option, uh, an opportunity potentially to turn back to the Lord. And it's actually here at the beginning of what we just read in verse 12 that we begin to get a clearer picture of why Israel calling for a king was evil. Like what, what made it evil? Because in chapter, or in chapter 12, verse 12, when the threat came against them, he says, what did they do? They didn't turn to God to defend them. They didn't turn to God to deliver them or to save them. They didn't want to look to their unseen God to deliver in the ways that he already had so many times before. Rather, they wanted a seen king, something they could see and put their hands on and, and, and see him delivering. They didn't want to lean on God the way that they should have, the way that God had delivered in the past, but rather they wanted to go to a, a physical king that could be their figurehead and give them a national identity. They wanted something else other than God to put their identity and their hope in, to live for. And what's going on here really is idolatry. Not that a king for Israel was always going to be an idol. There was a chance for the people and the king to still serve the Lord and for him to be God over them. But in this case, they were looking to something else, someone else to be in the place of God for them. You know, it was God who was their king. It was God who actually judged them by his law and through the leaders that he had appointed. And it would be God who led through David eventually and through a few other kings down to the line who would follow him. And it was God who had gone out before them up until this point and fought for them. It was God who had been gracious and merciful to them. He had given them everything that they had. Everything they had, they they owed to him. And yet, they let their hearts turn after other things. The desire to have a king like the nations. They were never meant to be just like the nations, but rather a people set apart. God said, you are going to be my people set apart for my purposes and for my name. And it's almost like 
It's almost like I want, we want to be like the nations and not be set apart like you or for you. And again, they use that language from Deuteronomy 7.14, this whole nations thing, but and they, they may have been trying to make their request seem legitimate, but it wasn't legitimate. The desire was actually to be like the nations around them rather than set apart to God. And the lure of the world and the things of the world around them pulled them away from hoping in God. And the reason that we go to a place like this in biblical history tonight is that we need to see the temptation for us to be just like them. You could be like, why in the world have we just talked about 1 Samuel 8, 1 Samuel 12, what does that have anything to do with me? It's because we can be just like them. There's a temptation for us to be like them. God is our God. He's the provider of all good things for us. He is our hope. He is the source of our identity. If we are in Christ, that is the core of who we are. Our identity is found in him. We are set apart as his people, and he alone can truly satisfy the desires of our hearts. He, he alone knows how to provide for the desires of our hearts in a way that truly satisfies and truly fulfills us. And yet, we can be like the Israelites and look at the world around us and see things that we want and then be tempted to believe that those things will satisfy us. And we have these God-given desires that aren't bad in and of themselves. Desire itself, we're going to talk about this in a second. Desire itself is not bad. God gave us desires. But they're desires that he intends to fulfill and satisfy in his own way and his, in his own timing. And yet we are drawn out by these desires sometimes to try to satisfy them ourselves. To look to things in the world to try to satisfy the desires of our heart, the desires of, of the things that we really want. And we're drawn out by these things and tempted by these things to go outside of God's design, outside of God's plan for us to try to find satisfaction for the desires that we feel. And we're tempted to look around us at other people who have what we think we want or experience what we think we would like to feel or experience, and we become dissatisfied with God's plan for us. We become dissatisfied with the way that God has blessed us, and our desires for those things or the desires themselves can become idols that we reject God for in favor of, in favor of trying to obtain some satisfaction of those desires for ourselves, a new identity for ourselves from something in the world. And we may even do it in subtle ways, ways that seem almost pretty innocent to us. You probably don't think of yourself much as a jealous person. You probably aren't looking at your life and going, I've got all these desires that are just leading me into awful amounts of temptation. But let's be honest with ourselves for a second. How content do you feel? We're touching on feelings here, right? How content do you feel? If you're honest with yourself, there's probably a lot of things that you, you want in life that you don't have or experiences that you want to have but you feel like you're not getting or maybe you're being left out of or God is holding back from you. And we probably don't always feel all that content. And we set ourselves up. In that lack of contentment, we are set up for these temptations to draw us out with desires that we feel after things of the world. Like, do you trust that the Lord is providing all that you need right now? If you're being honest, do you trust that the Lord is providing all that you need and everything that he has in mind for you? You need to be honest with yourself about this too. How often do you compare yourself 
and your life with other people and their lives? You know, are there desires that you have that you'd be willing to sin in order to satisfy? Think about that for a second. Are there desires that you have that you know you'd be willing to sin in order to satisfy? If we're all honest, we could find some things. Do you want community so bad that you'll do things, say things, act in ways that you know you shouldn't in order to find that community? Sometimes might call this peer pressure, right? Do you want so badly to succeed or to look good in other people's eyes that you'll cut corners or lie or cheat or slander others in order to, to look better yourself? Do you want physical intimacy so badly that you're willing to sit on a device and watch pornography just to almost catch an outside glimpse of it? We need to be honest with ourselves. And I'm not trying to be negative Nancy here tonight. I just want us to be clear about a couple things, okay? For one, our desires don't make good kings. That's a little play on words. We talked about kings tonight. But our desires don't make good kings. You know, last week or two weeks ago, we actually said feelings don't make good gods. Kind of a similar sentiment. And again, this is not to say that desire is bad in and of itself. Feeling a desire for something doesn't mean you're being tempted to sin. Those are not always equated with each other. Having a desire for something, that is just built into us by God. God gave us desires. But he built, this in, built these desires into us because he intends to satisfy them. He intends to fulfill us. We are physical creatures with physical desires. We are emotional creatures with emotional desires. We are relational creatures with relational desires. And that is all good and normal and God-given. God didn't give us these things with no intent to satisfy them. And yet he gave us free will put us in a world where sin did enter the, the picture and we have sinful natures that sometimes these desires, we chase them, the desires that we feel, and try to find satisfaction outside of them. You know, there are always right ways to go about finding the satisfaction that God set us up for with these desires. And ultimately, as our trust is in the Lord, as we're walking with him, he will give us the desires of our heart. If our desires are set on him and we are trusting him and walking with him, he will satisfy the desires of our heart, just maybe in ways that we didn't expect. Maybe in ways we weren't looking for. So desires themselves are not bad, but seeking fulfillment of our desires in non-God-ordained ways is bad. And desires are easily perverted. James 1 kind of lays this out a little bit. He talks about our desire and how we are drawn away or lured away by our desires into sin. We'd be tempted to follow those desires to their desired ends And temptation comes when our desire sets its sights on being fulfilled outside of God and his design and his plan for us. You know, so we can't let our desires be king over us because nothing and no one else can be king over our lives except for God. God is our king. You know the feeling, I'm sure, of becoming overwhelmed with a desire for something or overwhelmed with a sense of just like envy over somebody else having the thing that you want or somebody else seemingly experiencing the experiences that you want. 
we know what that's like, and our hearts can come, become so consumed with the things that we want, and like our whole selves are just chasing after to try to possess or get to that thing that it is that we feel like we desire. We can become so preoccupied with it. But the things that we obsess over, once we have them, we often realize don't actually fully satisfy us. You know, once we have them, we realize that they can't be the source of deepest fulfillment for us. They will leave us wanting still. Here's another thing we need to realize, that pursuing fulfillment apart from God will leave us empty. He said, you wanted a king like the nations, you're getting a king like the nations, and you're not going to be satisfied with it. He's going to take away from you. He's going to rule over you. And how often does our jealousy or our self-seeking take away from us more than it gives? The things that we become obsessed with or we pursue, the desires that we allow to sort of rule over our lives, how often do do we find that they actually take from us more than they give? Idolatry is a broken cistern, okay? We haven't looked at any other outside passages tonight, but I want to look at one right here. Jeremiah 2.13, another Old Testament text. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What he's saying is like, God is saying, my people, if they had just walked with me, I was a fountain of living waters for them. I, sat, I would satisfy them. I would satisfy their souls. I'd provide for them. But instead, they tried to dig out cisterns. If you don't know what a cistern is, it's just a, something you would store water in. They dug out cisterns for themselves, but they're broken. And the broken cisterns can hold no water. They try to pour in, pour in, and store, store up satisfaction and fulfillment for themselves, but it leaks. You don't need a cistern because I'm a fountain of living water for you. And man, if you put anything before God, seek the fulfillment of a desire in, in a way that does not honor the Lord, it's like trying to store up water in a container that leaks. It'll never be full. I mean, go back and see what Samuel says in, in chapter 12, verse 21. He says, do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver. They are empty. Don't turn anything else to, to deliver you, to save you, to satisfy you, to give what you're looking for, to set up your identity. Don't look after all these other things. They're empty. God is trying to say to them, everything outside of me is empty. You go try to pursue the fulfillment of your desires outside of me, you're going to come up empty. Some of the th- same things, some of the same things that you want, I am willing to give you in my time and in my way if you would just wait on me, if you just trust me, if you just walk with me. And I think that's what's so interesting here about the Israelites. They, they would have gotten a king. And not long after. But they refused to wait on the Lord. They wanted a king their own way. They wanted a king in their own timing. They wanted a king of their own making. The desire for a king wasn't bad. It was the way they were pursuing that desire. And so listen, God will satisfy our desires. Maybe not in ways that we'd expect. Maybe not in the ways that we're looking for, but he knows how to satisfy in his own time, in his own way, according to his plan, according to his design, following him and walking with him rather than turning to the side, to the left or the right, after temptations, after fulfillment of these desires that is not happening in a God-ordained way, in a God-honoring way. If we'll just follow after him, we will be satisfied. Another moment of honesty here. If you got everything that other people have that you want, if you got all those things, would it really make you happy? You look around at the world, 
you could ask the question, is the world around you a happy place? Is it full of joy? Would pursuing being like the world actually satisfy you if the people in it are so unsatisfied? And we need to be honest about this too, that getting the thing that you wanted doesn't necessarily mean God has blessed it or blessed you with it. The people got a king. It wasn't God's blessing. Sometimes God gives us the desires of our heart even when they're misguided in order to discipline us or show us our error, how short these things are going to come up. Sometimes they'll give you the things that you asked for or the things that you wanted or the things that you pursued, and you get them. That doesn't mean it's God's blessing. If you wanted a relationship so bad, like a dating relationship, and you just pursued that hard, and you prayed about it, and then somebody agreed to date you, it doesn't mean that God has blessed it. Sometimes God gives us the things that we ask for, the things that we're pursuing, to prove a point, or to show us something, to show us that he is the only thing that can really satisfy. It's only God who makes anything worth having. And only God who can satisfy, and he can, and he often does, satisfy through the means that we would not have expected. This is what he did so often for Israel. He delivered them from their enemies through unexpected means. In a couple chapters, David, a small little shepherd boy, is going to defeat a giant and send a whole army running. That's God. That's the way God works, in unexpected ways. And I think we ought to trust him enough to think that he can work in unexpected ways for us. And if it's not the blessings or the things that we desire or, or are happening in our timing or in the way that we want, doesn't mean that God isn't working. Doesn't mean that God doesn't plan to satisfy the desires that he has put in us. And that's not to say that every desire that you have is something he put in us. But the core desires, if you would go behind all your desires, I have a desire for this, a desire for that. If you go behind those desires, there are real core desires that are essential to us being just human. And God has every intention of satisfying those. So what are we to do? what Samuel told him to do. Okay, he said in verse 24 of chapter 12, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. Fear the Lord. Recognize him as the Lord, as the sovereign Lord over all, the only one who can really satisfy, the only one who can really save. Honor him as such, and then serve him faithfully with all your heart. Don't let your, cha- your heart chase after the nations. Don't let your heart chase after the things of the world. Don't let your heart be divided between God and idols. Live for him. Let him provide. Rather than living for provision wherever you think you can get it, live for the only one who can provide. And then consider the great things he's done for you. He's saying, remember all these things. At the beginning of the speech, the stuff we didn't read in chapter 12, he's saying, remember who God has shown himself to be. Remember what God has done for you as a guarantee that he can continue to do that for you. Let his great grace be what moves you to honor and serve him. But here's an interesting thing. So often in the Old Testament, in big moments like this, moments of transition, the, the, the sort of leaders that God has appointed will say something like this. Like, just follow the Lord. If you follow the Lord and obey him, then you'll have blessing. But if you deny him and reject him and forsake him, then his hand will be against you. So many times they say this in turning points in the Old Testament. And what always happens People always fail. The people always fail to uphold their end of the deal. They always fail to obey. And there's a sense, even in what Samuel is saying, that he knows that they're not going to be able to uphold this. He knows that this king 
And these people are not going to chase after God and, and pursue him. And it's almost like Samuel would, would be saying, and I feel like we could take from this too, that the real problem is not a physical enemy that needs to be defeated for them and for which they sought a king. The real problem is spiritual. The real problem is their sin, the rejection of God. And God is the only one who's going to be able to save them from that. And praise the Lord, he has. Right, and this is where it comes to us. Like, consider the great thing he has done for us. Praise God, we're on the other side of things. There is a king who came. It wasn't David. It was Jesus. And he set up a, a new kingdom. And he invited us into it. And he made a way for us to come into it. And then he gave us a new heart by his Holy Spirit within us so that we might actually be able to, to follow him. It might actually be able to obey him. He has given us the, this, that the Old Testament people, they never had the opportunity to have what we have in the Holy Spirit and a new heart like this, to be able to follow him and actually do what he's calling us to do. So what are we doing if we're looking anywhere else for our sense of value or our meaning or satisfaction or identity? Can we not trust the Lord to provide? Because we have seen what he's done for us in Jesus. So let's please be grateful for what the Lord has done. Be grateful for what the Lord has done in Jesus. Be grateful for what the Lord has done in your life up to this point. Be grateful and remind yourself regularly of his faithfulness and his provision for you already. Take some moments out of your day. Take some moments out of your life to just remember the things that God has done for you. My wife, Amy, she was here earlier with our our four children, um, which are all blessings from the Lord. We were in college. She was having sort of like a, a, I don't know, I don't remember how she would call it, but it was like, a time where she needed to be reminded of the things that she had to be grateful for. And so for 100 days, she wrote down just one thing that she was grateful for. And I think she still has it. Like she made like sort of an artwork type thing out of it, but it's like 100 things that she was thankful for, one a day for 100 days to try to change her sort of heart attitude toward the Lord. And I think it worked, you know, based on, based on who she is today, right? And she is, you know, trusted the Lord. And it's one of those things like, can we not just remind ourselves regularly of his faithfulness and provision and just be grateful for those things? To look at what he's done for us already and, and say, you know what, if he has done all these things already for me, then I can submit myself to him and my desires to him, knowing that he can satisfy. That if he's done all this for me already, then I know he can do so much more for me in the days ahead. And remember that who we are rests on who God is. Samuel said, listen, God's not going to forsake you because of his name's sake. It's verse 22. The Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. He's put his name on you, Christian. You are in Christ if you have put your faith in Jesus. And who you are rests on who he is. So look to who he is, who he has been for you. And who he has been will show you who he'll continue to be. Great and greatly to be praised.